The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, October 14th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. If you are a guest with us, let me extend my welcome. I'm Robert. I'm one of the pastors here. And I get the privilege this morning of guiding us in God's Word. So if you want to grab your Bibles and make your way to the book of Philippians, we are going to continue our walk through that book. And here's my thing. I'm going to try to finish this journey through Philippians by the start of the Advent season, uh, which means we've got till the end of November. Um, and this morning, we're just going to finish chapter one. So you're going to have to trust me. I think we have a plan. Um, we'll see as the weeks go. But make your way to Philippians chapter one. We'll pick up this morning in verse 27. And as you're getting there, I'll just share with you, I was reminded as I thought about this morning, in particular in the the commissioning of the various core teams and communities, seeing them here on the north side and over at the 400, and then just looking out uh, this morning at 9, at 10, and now at 11, seeing the people, knowing some of the stories, knowing some of the, 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 the connections that God has put together through the church. I was just reminded as I thought about how astounding the institution of the church really is, um, how underestimated it really is even in our own minds. The church is the only institution on earth that was established by God, not man. Because of that, it, it has been imbued with a whole host of eternal characteristics. You know, it was Jesus who founded the church. He purchased it with his own blood. He intimately identifies himself with it. It's his body, the dwelling place of his spirit. And he tells us over and over in his word that the church is his chief instrument for bringing glory to his father in this world and in bringing the gospel to the nations. And in bringing the gospel to the nations, he's bringing to himself a redeemed people from every tribe, tongue, and land. And that together, his people, the church, are to have this single-mindedness, this going out about them, making disciples, baptizing, and teaching people to enjoy Jesus, obey Jesus, and remember his death and resurrection even as we gather together through the bread and the cup. John Stott, the great 20th century theologian, statesman, pastor, he said that the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. The church, he said, is not a divine afterthought of God's. No other institution, no other organization, regardless of the good that it creates on this earth, can say this. And the church should be important to us because it's important to Christ. But here's the thing, if we're, if we're not careful... We can allow ourselves in the drift of the everyday and the mounting callings and pressures that are put upon people every single day. We can allow ourselves to make the church an afterthought. We can even begin to view the church established by God through the grace of His Spirit and the life, death, and resurrection of His Son to be seen through our own eyes for what it can benefit us. We can easily lose the, the clarity of purpose for which God established the church. And not only that, in, in 
today's world, the church is in danger of becoming adrift on the sea of very rapidly shifting cultural norms and, and mounting pressures of conformity. You know it as well as I do. The world in which we live in, in the 21st century, has disowned Christianity. For many people in many places, the idea of something even like evangelism, the intentional sharing of the good news of the life, death, and resurrection, the joy that is to be found in Jesus, for many people today, that's simply something that is intolerable. Deep realities of the Christian faith, truth on which our lives are built, even the gospel itself, that grace alone is found, that faith alone comes by God's grace alone, that salvation is found in Jesus alone, to the glory of God alone, for many people in parts of the world today is, is tantamount to, to hate speech. There are pressures mounting inside and outside all around the church today. C.S. Lewis said it very well that courage is not simply one of the cardinal virtues, but courage is the form of every single virtue at its testing point. He said Pilate was merciful until it became too risky for him to remain merciful. See, in this world, if we are going to follow Jesus at all, it is going to take clarity and it's going to take courage. But praise God, by His grace and for His glory and our joy, He gives us both. And we're reminded of them both. Clarity and courage. And the letter that Paul writes to the church in Philippi this morning Let's pick it up in verse 27. Let's listen. For the clarity that God gives his people, the clarity of mind, the clarity of purpose, and the depositing of courage that's necessary for God's people today, the church, to withstand the, the mounting pressures from within and without. Chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, Only, may I stop right there? So I know you don't figure I'm going to make it through four chapters by the end of November if I stop at every word, but... I promise we'll pick up steam along the way. Paul says, only. Another way of saying that is just this one thing. Another way that some of your Bibles will translate that is above all. So what Paul is saying is, here is what matters. Whatever becomes of us, whatever pressures may arise, whatever things may happen, whatever becomes of us, what matters most is only this. So, so here's our clarity. Here's what we need. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Friends, what the Apostle Paul was saying to the church then and what God is saying through the Apostle Paul to us today is that what matters most, what should be of supreme importance to us is that our manner of life together is lived in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, don't forget, this is, a, this is a plural letter. This is a, a y'all letter. Paul is talking about our lives together. Let y'all's manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So let's take a few minutes and let's just tease out what Paul is saying here so that we really understand what he's saying. 
Now, when Paul speaks to the church, and he speaks to us today, and he says to let our manner of life, that's five English words to translate one Greek word. And the one Greek word has as its root the root that we get for politics, for polis, for city, for state. Whenever it was used in the Greek language, not just in the Bible, but outside of the Bible, in common usage to refer to a verb form or an active life, it's always used in reference to living as a good citizen in the city, in the state. So when Paul says, let your manner of life, what people would have heard was live as a good citizen. Now we've got to be very clear to what place is Paul calling them to live as good citizens? If you were with us in the very beginning of this journey through the letter, you may remember that about 150 or so years before Paul and this first envoy of Christians came to preach the gospel in Philippi, Philippi, by virtue of another battle, became an official Roman colony, became part of the Roman Empire. So the people who lived in Philippi were Roman citizens. They had all the rights, the privileges, and the protections of Rome. It was very important in that culture to live as virtuous, good citizens of the empire. Is that what Paul is calling them to? Reminding the church that what matters most, of utmost importance, is that they live as good citizens to the empire, or does Paul have with that something else in mind? Well, later on in this letter, he's going to be very explicit regarding something that they would have understood already here. In chapter 3, verse 20, Paul is going to remind the church that our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He told the church in Colossae and no doubt preached to the, to the church in Philippi when he was with them that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So what they would hear in the words that Paul was saying, writing to them, is that this, what matters most, above all else, only this, is that together as the church, we live out the realities of our heavenly citizenship, that we demonstrate to a watching world our allegiance in the way that we live here and now. That our manner of life together is to demonstrate a different allegiance and a greater joy. There's something about the priorities, the motives, the values, the decisions of God's people together, the church, that says something to a watching world. Another way to understand what Paul was trying to say is that people in your place, in Philippi then, in Richmond now, people in this city, should experience the church as an outpost of God's kingdom. There's something afoot here that speaks of a greater joy. Now, when I've talked about these verses with people over the last couple of weeks, just talking through them, getting their impressions and understandings, kind of knowing what direction we're going to go when we, when we present it like this morning, there was one question that came up with everybody that I talked to. So let's try to clear something up as we, as we move for this. When Paul talks about living our lives in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, what in the world does he mean in this worthiness? Does Paul mean that we have to live in such a way that we deserve the gospel? That's not what he's saying at all. What Paul means is that you and I are meant to live in such a way that our manner of life together 
the culture that is cultivated amongst God's people together, the culture of the church as we live our life together in the joy of Jesus is meant to be consistent with the grace and the power of the gospel. That the manner of our life together is to give representation, is to give implicit proclamation of our allegiance to a different king in a different kingdom, but our manner of life together is meant to be lived in such a way that the grace and the power of the gospel is seen and demonstrated in the things we do, the things we say, and the priorities that we have, that this is indeed an outpost of God's kingdom, that we together are living proof of God's kingdom that we live to show, to demonstrate, to bear witness to the infinite value and worth of the gospel. For the gospel is worth it. And our lives and our decisions demonstrate its worth, that there's a greater joy, that we get Jesus. And he's worth it all. This is what Paul's talking about. To live as a good citizen is simply for our lives together to demonstrate our continued joy in Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. It's another way to communicate what we looked at last week when we talked about Paul's big driving ambition, Paul's big why, his understanding of the purpose for which God had him and the rest of God's people on this earth. He's just saying it again in a different way, that Jesus and whatever he said and whatever he did and however he drank and however he ate and whether he lived or whether he died, that Jesus would be highly exalted, made to be seen in his body and through his life as worth it. And that's all he's saying to the church. What matters most is that collectively in our lives, as God's people, we demonstrate that there is a greater joy, that Jesus is worth it. So here's the clarity, right? Here's the clarity of mind and purpose for the church. Here's the clarity of mind on a morning like this for the communities that we are praying for and commissioning this morning. Here are our divine marching orders. Live in such a way that demonstrates that Jesus is really worth it all. Let our lives together by the choices, the values, the priorities, the motivations that drive us to do and say what we do and say demonstrate that our deepest joy is found in him. What that means is that we begin to make calculated decisions. We begin to think together about the different circumstances and opportunities and and situations we face in life and we make calculated decisions in those spaces regarding what will make him be seen for as great and as glorious as he truly is. And it's to that end we go. That's what Paul's talking about. One writer said that our best argument for the gospel is not a concept, but a people. And so reflecting on this clarity and this purpose, he said we can invite people into the church and say, decide for yourself, is this just more of America or is this something more? Is this place in the lives of these people together reflective of of the rest of the watching world? Same priorities, same values, same motives, same goals, same determinations, same joys. Or is there something more? Is there a greater joy that is being enjoyed? Is there something more that's shaping the motives, the values, the priorities of the church and the decisions of our lives? Letting our lives reflect 
be lived in a manner worthy of the gospel is simply living together in such a way that we show a watching world that Jesus is worth it and that he's our deepest joy. But Paul gets very specific in these verses. There's something in particular here that he's going to talk about that makes Jesus look so great through us. Listen to what he says. Whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I want to hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So our calling is to live worthy of the gospel. And Paul says that whether he's with them or not, whether he can talk to them face to face, experience life together with them, or he just has to hear reports about them, he's looking for the same thing. He wants to hear, he wants to see the same thing, that God's people are living in a joyful steadfastness together under pressure. A joyful, courageous steadfastness under pressure together demonstrates to a watching world that Jesus really is worth it. Listen to how Paul explains it. One thing that makes Jesus look so great is when his church lives as courageous citizens of his kingdom, together, unified, steadfast. And to communicate that, Paul is going to do something that every single speaker is told you're never supposed to do, and every single writer is always told you're never supposed to do, but I do it all the time because Paul does it. And if Paul does it and it's part of God's inspired word, then it's okay for me to do it. Paul is going to mix metaphors all over the place. Paul is going to bounce from picture to picture to picture because in the words that he uses, there are images that people are going to have in their minds that are going to solidify the truth of what he's saying. So I want you to catch the pictures because we miss the pictures in the way that we have to translate the language. Paul says, I want to hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Now, when they would have read that or they would have heard that read in their gathering together, immediately they would have had in their mind a picture of a Roman battalion. This is military language. And the Roman military was something that everyone was familiar with, everyone understood, everyone had seen, everyone had heard about. When Paul says that he wants to see the church standing firm, that is a military word for holding your ground. That's what it means. Standing firm and holding your ground. Paul is calling the church to a a steadfast, unified determination. He's going to use the same language later in chapter 4. And when he uses it in chapter 4, he's going to remind them of the ground of this determination and the empowerment of this determination. In chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, My brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. Here's affection. He says, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. You see, the determination that Paul is calling the church to, to stand firm, is is grounded in what God has done for us in Jesus. It's grounded in the reality that by God's grace, we're his. That he set his love and his affection upon us. That he's given us his spirit to empower us. You see, it's our continued enjoyment of Jesus that solidifies our determination to stand firm together in one spirit with one mind, which is just a collective way of saying with one purpose. 
The language there says one soul, one psyche, one soul, one mind. It's one purpose. When God's people stand together, living their lives in a manner worthy and reflective of the gospel and the joy that is found in Jesus, there is a determination that is born in them by God's grace that can stand the pressures of a mounting world. Paul says, this is what I want to hear about you. And when he he tries to give them this idea, he gives them this picture. But then he mixes metaphors. Not just do I want to hear that you're standing together in a unified purpose, a unified understanding. I want to hear that you're striving together. Now he, he shifts arenas from the military to the athletic arena. See, the word behind striving has as its root the same word that we get athlete. It's athleo. And there were various competitions, so all the scholars try to figure out, was he talking about the Olympic Games? Was Paul talking about the gladiatorial arena? What was Paul talking about in particular? There were other sports and other events that happened in Paul's day that were more group-oriented, where there were were group wrestling and fighting events that happened, and everybody's trying to figure out what is it he's actually pointing to. It doesn't really matter. The detail really isn't that important to the understanding. If you want to get a picture in your head of what he's saying, it's best today in our, in our time to think about a football team. A football team has a ton of people, and everyone has to be unified in purpose and mind. Every single player that's sent out onto the field for every single play has to be clear on what's supposed to be accomplished on each play and what part they're supposed to be play. And when they play their part, clear in mind on what the purpose is, they are striving with determination and endurance and skill and discipline side by side to advance the ball down the field. That's the picture. If you look at football plays in a book or on a screen, they look like mass chaos. They look like an absolute jumble of things going on that make no sense. One person's going left, another person's going right, two people are going 30 yards that way, another person's coming around the back over here, but with one purpose and one mind. Clarity on the intended expectation, clarity on the specific aim of striving. They strive side by side to advance the ball down the field. So what is the aim in our striving that Paul is trying to get this picture of? Well, he says very clearly that we strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. We strive side by side for the expanding confidence and joy we have in Jesus. But in the tenor of the whole letter, in the tenor of everything that Paul is saying, his eye is not just to the expanding joy that we have and that we experience in Jesus. It's it's to the expanding of joy in Jesus to other people who have not heard or known him yet. The single-mindedness with which our life is lived in a manner that gives demonstration and proclamation to the joy that is found in Jesus. The single-mindedness with which we are to strive together is to see the gospel advance and for the joy that's to be found in Jesus alone to come to more and more and more people. And here's the thing, as a kind of a caveat, just like a football team, each of us will, will execute our roles differently. And what I mean by that is that our striving won't look like someone else's striving. Collectively, our church won't look like every single other church in everything that we do. And, 
And individually, you as a follower of Jesus committed to live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel, striving to see the joy that's known in Jesus to come to more and more people that God has put you around. Your striving won't look like someone else's striving, so don't be paralyzed by that. We get so paralyzed comparing ourselves to other people, so paralyzed looking at how God is using other people to do the same advancement of his gospel. Don't be paralyzed by comparing yourself to other people. Making this commitment your one commitment, making this commitment our commitment to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, to strive together for the faith of the gospel to advance and for the joy of the gospel to advance in us and through us. Ask God to help you see what that looks like for you today and tomorrow and the next day. Every single step of advancement and striving, every single decision of striving for the sake of the gospel, God honors. For some of you, it might simply be opening up your home to people who don't agree with you, who don't think like you. That's what the Bible calls hospitality. That is one of the most courageous acts of the advancement of the gospel that God calls the church to. For some of you, it might be inviting someone to read a book on the gospel with you. For some of you, you you might feel God calling you to go and visit those who are in prison. For some of you, it might be God calling you to commit yourself to the local PTA association or the school in your neighborhood, getting to know the families of the people your children are in school with, hoping to see the gospel advance in the lives of those that God's put you around. It might be committing yourself to a neighborhood association. It might be connecting with, with the Spurlocks and some of our campus ministers here and going to see the gospel advance on different campuses here in Richmond, seeing the gospel and the joy of Jesus take root in the hearts of college students all over the place, international students that God is bringing to the city. The, the opportunities are endless. But would you be willing to ask him to expand your passion to see his gospel and his joy advance not just in you but through you? With the discipline and endurance of an athlete and the determination of a soldier, God calls us to commit ourselves to the main thing of seeing the gospel advance, of more people coming to see and enjoy Jesus. We have to ask ourselves in light of that clarity of purpose, is that what we want? I mean, why do athletes discipline themselves the way they do? Why do they endure such rigorous training? such strenuous efforts, especially as competition gets close. I mean, why do soldiers put themselves willingly through such harsh training and difficult conditions? They do it because in their heart they've come to believe that the goal is worth it. The end they have in mind is worth it. We have to come to the same conclusion when it comes to the gospel. Is the increased glory that God deserves and is due Him and the joy that He gives us in His Son worth it? Is it worth it to us? Friends, it is this unified determination and striving for the ever-expanding joy in Jesus that God has ordained as a means for us, the church, to withstand the mounting pressure that's constantly being exerted against it. This is the bigger picture Paul is painting. 
It's this unified, steadfast, joyful, courageous standing and striving for the joy of the gospel. It's the continual living our life together in a manner that is worthy of the gospel as good citizens of his kingdom that God has ordained as a means for us together to be able to withstand the pressures. That's why later on in this letter, Paul is going to use this same phrase for striving together to try to bring unity in the church between two members of the church who are now striving against each other. Because it makes no sense if this is the purpose for which God created and the ends for which he's established his church and the source or the joy that he's created us for, for us to be striving against each other now. And that's what all of our insistence on, on petty differences and petty arguments and little niggling things in the church that we're always arguing about and getting our, our hair in a mess about, it creates a fracture to this very thing that God has intended as the means to enable us together to withstand the pressures that mount against the church. You see, it's when we live this way, unified in determination, striving courageously with joy, for the advancement of the gospel, that you and I are as compelling to our world today as the early church was to Rome. This is the calling, the clarity that God has for his people. And with clarity, with single-mindedness, we live with courage, not frightened, Paul said, in anything by our opponents. We don't get startled and turn and run. That's the picture. That's the metaphor. Paul shifts again. He goes back to the military. When he talks about being frightened, it's the word they would use for horses in battle that would get startled in battle, throw their riders and turn and run in the other direction, and a stampede of, 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 of retreat would be created. Paul said this togetherness of unity of mind, of purpose, this clarity of purpose, this increasing delight and joy in the gospel, this unified commitment to live in a manner that makes Jesus be seen as worth it for all that he truly is, this ever-expanding joy, it builds in us the courage to withstand the pressures. It cultivates the courage in us to continue to stand and strive. And as we do, something unexpected happens. We don't talk about it a lot. As we live this way, as we understand with clarity the purpose that God has created us and the church for, as we commit ourselves to living in, in this expansiveness of his joy, he's doing other things through us. Paul says this living, this commitment to this manner of living, this standing and striving, it's a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. Paul just said a church that stands unified in the purpose of the gospel in the face of mounting pressures is literally a double-sided billboard, a two-way sign to the world. On one side, to those who currently reject Jesus' authority, the church's standing in the midst of pressure is a sign to a watching world of their own unbelief and of God's impending judgment for those that don't repent. I don't know if you've ever considered this, but in the ordinariness of living your life to the glory of God and the deepening and joy of Jesus, in the ordinariness of us together, of living in a manner worthy of the gospel, committing ourselves to the advancement of joy in Jesus in the lives of other people, ordinary realities 
calling of God's people, God does something utterly extraordinary. He uses the witness of his church, living as citizens of his kingdom, in the enjoyment of his grace, regardless of the pressures that mount, to bring the conviction of sin to those that are being saved. Our collective life is literally a billboard of eternal realities. Our collective life together lived in a manner worthy of the gospel is a billboard of eternal joy, of eternal gain, and of eternal loss. A watching world sees a people living for a greater joy, and God uses that to bring people to himself. And I want to be very careful here because I realize that when we, when we talk about something like this, the, the purpose for which God has for his people and for the church, and then we, we look at Paul's words and we use his metaphors and we start talking about military language and athletic language, I realize that in the day and the climate in which we live that is so politicized and so emotional, a, a portion of the church hears this and starts singing, Onward Christian Soldier, and they've got all kinds of things in their mind that we're supposed to go and do to take this and take that. So I want you to hear in the clarity of purpose that God gives his church through Paul, I want you to hear the tone with which we live our life in a manner worthy of the gospel. The tone that directs our standing and our striving. Chapter 2, verse 1. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Very similar to what he's already said. Now listen to verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. The portrait of unified steadfastness and striving that God uses to exalt Jesus is produced by a king who took on the form of a servant. The way we stand, the way we strive, it happens as we don't count ourselves more significant than each other. The courageous and joyful unity that reflects to a watching world the greater joy to be found in Jesus is a unity that is rooted in humility. This, Paul said, is a clear sign to a watching world that there is indeed something greater. Let the pressures mount. Paul said our life together is meant to say that the one true eternal God is with us and he's worth it all. There's a story from the fourth century that kind of makes this clear. There was a church father named John Chrysostom and Chrysostom was being threatened with death and banishment from the empire by Empress Eudocia. And famously, the empress told John Chrysostom that she was going to banish him for his faith in Christ. And he said, you can't banish me for this world is my father's house. So the empress said, I'll kill you. And Chrysostom said, you can't kill me for my life is actually hidden in God. She said, I'll take away your treasures. And he said, you can't take away my treasure. My treasure is in heaven and my heart's there. She said, I'll drive you away from your friends and you'll have no one left. And he said, no, you cannot, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. He said, Empress, I defy you. There is nothing you can do to harm me. See, this is exactly what Paul was encouraging the church with. 
Chrysostom's courage made him a, a clear sign, a placard, a, a billboard to the empress and the empire of the weakness of their power. And at the same time, his courage was a billboard, was a sign to them of the power of God in the midst of his weakness. God is doing something through our life together that we often don't even acknowledge. He is using our greater joy together in his son to bring a watching world to the place of conviction and repentance and joy. But not just that. God is using our life together, lived in a manner worthy of the gospel, to build our sense of assurance and salvation that's come from him. That's what Paul said. The same reality that exposes the need for repentance in some is the same means that builds the assurance of God in the church. Why? Well, that's what verse 29 says. This is of your salvation, that from God, for, because, here's the grounds of that, it's been granted, same word at the root for grace, it's been graced to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. See, it's for Jesus' sake, right? Sum the purpose, sum the clarity all the way down to one phrase, to one thing. It's for Jesus' sake that you and I have been double graced, Paul said. Graced with the privilege of not only believing in Jesus, but also the privilege of suffering in the midst of the mounting pressures for him. Two things we, we didn't deserve in our own, faith in Jesus and the privilege to suffer for his name. But God, by his grace, has lifted us up into his glorious purposes. He's lifted us up to experience the expansive joy found in knowing him and seeing others come to know him and enjoy him. Friends, it wouldn't be fair of me or just of me to, to end this morning without giving you something from Alec Motyer. I told you in the beginning of the series, if you like to read commentaries on books of the Bible, you've got to go buy anything Alec Motyer writes. He wrote a tremendous, very accessible commentary on the book of Philippians. And about this reality, he says this. For the church in Philippi, conflict would be the order of the day. And I would say this. For us, conflict, pressure. It's the order of the day. But... When out of conflict, the church purchases victory, standing in one spirit with one mind, jointly contending for the faith of the gospel, the church would not only see that gospel eating with convicting power into an unbelieving world. What a picture. They would also find that same spirit witnessing with their spirit that they are indeed the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, now suffering with him, but one day sharing with him in his eternal glory. Friends, Paul leaves us with one thing. One point, one big idea. Only this, Redemption Hill, will we let our manner of life, will we live together in such a way that we demonstrate the supreme worth of the gospel, the supreme worth of Jesus, 
the greater joy that we have that can only be found in him. Is that what we want? Friends, this is the purpose for which God has established his church. This is the clarity of mind and the clarity of purpose that God has given us. Friends, let it be so for you and I. May our manner of life together be such that through our choices, through our convictions, through our motives, through our priorities, through our words, through our decisions, Jesus is made to be seen as worth it all. And that God, in his extraordinary ways, takes our ordinary obedience and uses it to draw a watching world to him. And through our ordinary decisions and our ordinary lives, God does the extraordinary. He grounds our sense of confidence and assurance in him as we do this together. Friends, let it be so of us today, tomorrow, the next day, and the years to come as God would give them to us. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to have a chance to respond together to God's Word, and we're going to do it in a few ways. And the first way we're going to do it is by having a couple of minutes to just reflect on God's Word, to pray, to respond to Him in prayer. There are actually a couple of prayers on your worship guide uh, that may help you in this. Uh, if you're new to this, if you're here for the first time and still exploring the truths of who Jesus is and, and what that means and what we mean when we talk about enjoying Him, there are some prayers there that can kind of guide you in the next couple of minutes. And then for those who have repented of their sins and are enjoying Jesus more and more each and every single day, we are going to respond to his grace to us by remembering his life, his death, his resurrection as we receive communion, his body broken in our place for our sin, his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins, his resurrection for our right standing with God, remembering that God has taken our, our broken lives, the things that grieve us, and he's given us to his son, and he's given us to his son that we may be a part of his astounding purposes to see his name honored and his glory made known to the ends of the earth and that we would find our deepest joy in it. We remember this as we prepare to receive communion this morning and then we'll sing. We'll make much of him with our mouths and then be sent out from here as his people to live lives together in a manner worthy of his grace and the gospel. So let me pray and then we'll respond. Father, we thank you this morning for the clarity of mind and purpose that you give us. It's so easy for us to drift. It's so easy for us to conform to various norms and expectations of the church put upon us by, by others. But Lord, you have a purpose for which you have saved us. You have a purpose for which you have established the church. You have a purpose through which you will be glorified and we will live in a joy that you created us to experience. And so we ask that you would do the work in our hearts by your spirit to bring us to a place of confidence, to bring us to a place of delight in you and in this purpose. And we ask that you would do it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.